Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, good morning, everybody. We're going to cover five verses in Zechariah this morning, four through eight, and just cover the Lord splitting the Mount of Olives upon his return. It's going to be awesome. So let's, let's open in prayer and we'll get going here. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you so much for this time together as a family, as we gather right here around your word. Lord, I pray that you would pour your Holy Spirit out in this place and overflow this, this sanctuary, this building, us, Lord, as your vessels. And God, let us hear from you in a mighty way this morning. And I pray that you would continue to strengthen us and build our faith in these days, Lord, as we study your prophetic word, Lord, in Zechariah. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so if you remember in Zechariah, I, I took out some of our kind of standard intro slides we've been going through just because I think you guys have them enough. But um, what I did want to remind everybody of is Zechariah's name, that it means whom Yahweh remembers. And he's the son of Berkiah, which means Yahweh blesses. And Berkiah was the son of Edu, which means the appointed time. And so when you put those genealogies together, literally from grandfather to Zechariah, it means at the appointed time, Yahweh blesses whom Yahweh remembers. And this was a very important subtlety and a message for God's people, the Jewish people, in a time where they were captive in Babylon. And it's an important message for us today, frankly, because you, know, you and I are in a foreign land. Remember, we're sojourners through this land right now. We're not, this is not our home. Praise God, this is not our home, because it gets a lot better for us as God's people, but you're in a foreign land and God remembers you and he remembers what you're going through. He sees you. He has a call on your life. He has a plan for you. And that's an important message that we have to keep in mind as we're walking through these days, these, as second Timothy three calls it, these perilous times. And Lord, we just, you know, we need God to direct our steps. And so Yahweh, he remembers us. He remembers your family, your kids, all of it. So this book, we're almost finished with it, and I've had this bottom bullet point underlined for a couple of weeks, and we're not quite there yet, but we're close to it, where last week we studied the, the whole Armageddon scene, and this week we're going to go through what he does after Armageddon by splitting the Mount of Olives, and then later in the chapter, as we get closer to the end, actually the Lord gives us a, a viewpoint or a perspective on how he destroys his enemies of what we studied last week in Armageddon. And it's, it's really pretty graphic of protein dissolving in their body. It's, it's amazing. It, it mirrors what we would call today a neutron bomb, you know, in engineering or in, in physics. The neutrons only attack protein in people. And that's why they're in this chapter, you're going to see their eyes dissolve in their sockets and their tongues in their mouths. And it's pretty wild. But that's what the Lord does. He just lets them go whenever Armageddon as the staging ground is there and we return with him. So if you remember in our, in our outline, we've been going through this now for a while. 
And Zachariah, remember he had those 10 visions all in one night. They all occurred in one night and he must have been pretty exhausted by the end of it, I would imagine. And writing all this down for the Lord. And we've made it all the way down here to the last chapter of the book, which covers the second arrival of Christ. And as we've been going through these, these three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, they're not necessarily in chronological order, and that's just important to note as you're reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, a lot of these prophetic books, God tucks things away in corners, and even in the middle of a chapter, he'll have two or three verses that seem out of place, but he's giving you a hint of something much deeper somewhere else in the Bible, and it makes it pretty exciting to read and study, actually. It reminds me of Proverbs 25, too, that it's the glory of the Lord to conceal a thing and the honor of kings to search out a matter. And the joy of reading the Bible is searching those things out and trying to piece together like a jigsaw puzzle what the Lord has written down for us. You know, if it was easy, you'd read it once and you just would put it down, right? Never read it again. But he wants you to build a relationship with him in it. So remember, the kingdom will be established by power. And at the end of this, we're going to look at the call to action slide. We're going to look at one short clip uh, from the World Economic Forum, from Yuval Noah Harari, talking about the globalist regime. See, what you have to realize is that a globalist regime is biblical. It's just with the king. The Satanists and the Antichrist-driven people want to bring it in without the king. So everything that Satan does is a counterfeit. You have to remember that. It's all throughout the Bible. You know, to be born again, Satan's counterfeit today is your eye, eat of this, your eyes will be open. You know, you'll become woke. Your eyes will be open. You can, you can be like God. And he has in the tribulation, he'll have Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, which mirrors the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everything he does is a counterfeit. Just don't ever forget that. Satan is not creative in that regard, at least. But when Jesus returns and he sets up his kingdom, the beautiful thing about his kingdom is it's, he will reign for a thousand years on the earth from, the, from his throne, the throne of David in Jerusalem, and there are two arms to his government. There's the Jewish nation and then the rest of the world, the Gentile world. And you and I get the opportunity to rule and reign with Christ from Romans. We're co-heirs with Jesus. And we're going to study that in depth after we finish Zechariah here. The Jewish government, so to speak, David will be the prince. You find that three times in the Old Testament that he'll be resurrected to be the prince of Israel while Jesus rules over the earth. Under David, remember what Jesus told the 12 disciples? Do you not know you'll sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel? And so below David, you have the 12 disciples. Then you have the 12 tribes of Israel. And then there are some layers below that. And so it's pretty amazing how the Bible lays this out. But that's his kingdom that will be set up and he's not going to be asking anyone permission to do it, which is the best part. Um, he doesn't need our permission. He's going to do it, and we get the honor and the privilege to be a part of it with him. Now, don't forget, and don't be surprised in any circle you're in, frankly, around the world right now, that people ignore the promise of Christ's return. They literally are just fulfilling prophecy by doing so. And that's in 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. See, the problem with most people is that they think 
God is an idle God that's I-D-L-E as, as if he's just sitting back, that he's sitting back and he doesn't get involved in the affairs of man. That's what happened in the days of Noah, the same scoffers. You know, why are you building this boat, Noah? You've been working on it for 120 years and nothing's happened. What's going on here? But God is so patient and that's what they need to realize is he's giving them space and time to repent and get right with him before he gets involved. Because once he gets involved, it's too late at that point. And so that's where that comes from in 2 Peter. Okay, remember chapter 13, they discuss the cleansing of Israel once the millennium is established. Chapter 14 lays out some of the events surrounding the staging ground of Armageddon, which is pretty amazing. And again, those three chapters, like I mentioned, they're not necessarily in chronological order. And what we studied last week was Armageddon. And I'll just mention this again because I'm sure all of you have non-saved friends, wherever you are in life, that are obsessed with Armageddon or may have a question for you about it or what's this Armageddon thing about because they hear about it in movies and books and they read about it and culture is pretty obsessed with kind of last days, zombie apocalypse, you know, kind of stuff. And really all it is, the apocalypse, all it means is the unveiling of. That's all apocalypse in the, Greeks, in the Greek means, apocalypsis, the unveiling of. And so when you read Revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, all it means is the unveiling of who he is, which is the true and only king of the earth and of the universe. And so that's what you need to tell them is, look, the apocalypse is not a bad thing if you are in Christ. If you're not, then you have a lot of, of trouble and heartburn. But the key is to get them saved now. And let's just review what we studied last time, these first three verses, and we'll dive into verse four and on. But behold, the day of the Lord cometh. And again, look that up in the Bible. The day of the Lord is separate from the day of Christ. Two different days. The day of Christ is of joy and happiness and excitement for us that are in him. The day of the Lord is one of gloominess and darkness and great heaviness and judgment. So you don't want to be a part of the day of the Lord. That's why you're rescued from it beforehand. You are removed as his bride, as the church of Christ. Okay, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. And remember, we talked about that last week. When God wipes out his enemies at Armageddon, everything that they had, the cities they had, the merchandise, the gold, the silver, you name it, it all falls under then the messianic kingdom. And not that Jesus needs any of it, but all of the world's riches then are set at his feet. And he divvies that up amongst the Jews and the Gentiles. Pretty amazing. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem. That includes the U.S. In whatever point, you know, we as a nation fall, um, I sometimes tend to believe it'll happen when, when the rapture happens because there are so many believers in the United States. But who knows? At some point, the United States will turn against Israel, though, and it'll happen in the tribulation at the latest. And the city shall be taken and the houses rifled and the women ravished and half the city shall go forth into captivity and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Now remember, this was a reference from Numbers. Remember in Numbers, he, they had Moses and the children of Israel had the book of the wars of the Lord. And we don't have that book today, but God's fought a lot of battles throughout the Bible. The first one we have in the Bible is in between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. 
Uh, one of the more famous ones might be the event at the Red Sea and all throughout Egypt in the Exodus event. You've got Joshua and Jesus talking before the Lord goes forth and destroys Jericho in Joshua 5. So Jesus doesn't just sit back. He's very involved and very active. And at this point, when Armageddon happens, all the nations are gathered. Remember, he returns, wipes them out, and the blood goes up to the horse's bridle. Think about four feet high. And it stretches for 1,200 furlongs through that valley of Jehoshaphat in Israel. That's how many people were gathered against Jesus to wage war with the Savior, which is just insanity. But they want to they fight the one that's holding them together. Just incredible. Okay, so starting in verse 4 here to cover for today. And his feet shall stand in that day. So in what day? The day that all of that's occurred. Okay, remember, the nations are gathered against Jerusalem. The children of Israel are pushed to the brink of extinction. They're in the wilderness, the remnant at least, that heeded his instructions from Matthew 24. They fled. They're in the wilderness. They cry out to him from Hosea 5.15. That's going to be part of my talk next Friday. But they cry out to him and ask for forgiveness for missing him the first time. And then Revelation 19 happens. We ride back with him. Jesus on his white horse, he, he lands in the middle of all of this army, this military staging ground. We're with him, surrounding him. He wipes them out. Their blood fills the valley up to the horse's bridle. We that are with him on our white horses some of our horses also get turned red, some speckled from the splattering, and some white, and that's all from Zechariah chapter 1. Then he goes to rescue the remnant of Israel. And I don't know if after he rescues the remnant in Isaiah 63, I don't know if he stands on the Mount of Olives after that or before it, but at some point after that staging ground war, this happens. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. So when he stands on the Mount of Olives, it's going to split. He's waiting for the pressure. All that mountain's waiting for is the pressure of a foot to stand on it. The whole thing is going to cleave east to west with a, a seismic activity. And it's going to split the mountain north and south. And so he changes the topography when he returns. And what you need to realize is that nature and creation move when Jesus is around. And think about, we're going to talk about this a little bit, but remember when he rides in on the donkey and he says, go get me a donkey by which no man is ever set on. And, he, and if you've ever seen someone try to sit on an animal, a horse or a donkey that's never been bridled and set on, they, they go crazy but yet creation stood still and allowed the creator to sit on that donkey and ride into Jerusalem, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. Now, the Mount of Olives, if you're not familiar with it, it only shows up twice in the entire Old Testament. Once here in Zechariah 14.4 and another in 2 Samuel 15 verse 30, David climbed the Mount of Olives, weeping because of Absalom's conspiracy. If you remember Absalom, when he was conspiring to be king over Israel, and David was fleeing and weeping. And it seems a little bit strange considering it shows up all the time in the New Testament. And there's actually a hotel in Israel built on the Mount of Olives. And some years ago, back in the 70s, maybe the 80s, 
they actually had to do a lot of remodeling on the foundation because sure enough, there's a fault line that runs right under the mountain, you know, go figure. But that's, they had to do that. And so all that fault line is waiting for again is the pressure of the foot of the creator to come back and he's gonna bring peace with him. But the Mount of Olives, it's the highest peak in the whole Judea area, okay? It overlooks Jerusalem by about 200 feet higher than Mount Zion and roughly 300 feet higher than Mount Moriah. If you remember, Mount Moriah is north of Jerusalem. It's where Abraham had to offer Isaac all the way back in Genesis. It's where Jesus was crucified. Okay, the Mount of Olives is a little bit of a higher peak if you've ever been to Israel. But, you know, they're all roughly about 2,500 feet in elevation, just to give you an idea. So the Mount of Olives was the place of the Lord's departure. It's also where he rode down on the donkey into Jerusalem from Matthew 21 and Luke 19. And we see his ascension in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men, which were angels actually, by them in white apparel, which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? Like, why are you just sitting around, guys? <clears throat> the same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then return they into Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So the ascension can also be in Luke. You can find it in Luke 24 also, just as a reference. But the Mount of Olives being east of Jerusalem was also the direction by which the Shekinah glory departed in Ezekiel. So remember in Ezekiel, Jerusalem and Israel, the Israelites, they get so bogged down in sin. They get so weighed down and so corrupted that the Shekinah glory, the glory of God had to leave the temple. And remember they, they engraved on the walls every false God and every pagan. They set up an idol statue in the temple. And so the Shekinah glory leaves, and that's in Ezekiel 11, 23, or 22 through 23. Then did the cherubims lift up their wings and the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. So it's likely the Mount of Olives to the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel. And so, okay, if you go down to Ezekiel 43, this is where he returns in the millennium, the same way by which he left. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a noise of many waters. Okay, if you, you can find that all throughout the Bible, the voice of many waters. And the earth shined with his glory, and it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision that I saw by the river Chebar. That's Ezekiel speaking. And I fell upon my face and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate whose prospect is toward the east. And so it's, it's amazing how much happens east of Jerusalem. And actually ancient maps, you know, all of our maps have north as upward. A lot of ancient maps actually have east as upward. And this may have something to do with it because Jesus rides in the donkey from the east. The glory of the Lord departed from the east. He ascended from the east. 
He's going to return in the east. He's going to split that mountain in the east. The glory of the Lord's going to return and refill the millennial temple in the east. So pretty amazing. But the Mount of Olives will not be the only mountain shaking at the return of Christ. And this is from Micah 1.4. Look at this. And the mountains shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire. Now, if you've ever seen wax, you know, if you watch the top of a candle that's lit, how the wax just melts slowly and it kind of starts from the inside out and it just slowly folds down like that. That's what the mountains do at Christ's coming. And that's pretty amazing as wax before the fire. And as the waters that are poured down a steep place, now Nahum chapter one, verse five, the mountains quake at him and the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Look at Habakkuk 3, verse 6. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. Psalms 18, 7. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth. So you, just, you see this all over the Bible. This is not just poetic language. This is genuinely going to happen. God's going to shake the earth and the mountains will melt. Okay, in verse five here in Zechariah 14, and ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel. Yea, yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. Okay, now this verse is just packed with information. Azel could be a reference to Beth Azel in Micah 1 verse 11. It's not anywhere else in the Bible, so it could be a reference to that. Now, God compares their flight at this time compared with that during the reign of Uzziah. Now, there's only two references to the earthquake in Uzziah's day. It's here in Zechariah 14, 5 and Amos chapter 1 verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the herdom of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, if you remember Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. That's the only other reference to it. Even all that's written about Uzziah, God doesn't describe the earthquake anywhere. Now, it would be like if you and I were writing something down and the Lord said what was written you know, two years before 9-11 or Something like that. It's, it's a marker, a major marker in an event in the time of the nation. And so it's curious that we don't have much information about it, but it must have been quite an event for Zechariah to reference it. You know, two centuries later, God is still reminding them of this earthquake that happened in the days of Uzziah. That's pretty, it must have been quite an earthquake. Okay, look at the end of verse five here. And the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. Okay, so Jesus will return with his angels and with his saints, both. Okay, he will be accompanied by his angels. You see this in Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. Now, that's, that's how you know this is different than the rapture. Because at the rapture, all of the eyes of the earth don't see him, and they don't mourn for him either. At the rapture, only those that love him see him. Only those that are in him see him. 
Only loving eyes see him and loving hands handle him. Okay, that's how you know. And he meets us in the air. He doesn't come to the earth at the rapture. He calls us up, come up hither. Remember in Revelation 4.1? And we meet him in the clouds in the air. Okay, then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. You know, I can imagine. Can you imagine? So how is this going to happen that here we are on earth and every single eye all over the entire planet will see when Jesus in Revelation 19 splits the space-time continuum and returns. And it's somehow he's going to unfold those, these dimensions that we live in and make it where everyone sees him when he returns. It will not be a surprise. It'll be a very dramatic event. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one wind of heaven to the other. So remember when he returns and wipes out his enemies, remember he dispatches us in Zechariah 1 to go forth around the earth and, and we come back and report that it's at rest and that everything is settled. Well, he sends his angels and he brings everyone to Jerusalem to gather his elect. Okay, he'll be accompanied by his saints in 1 Thessalonians 3, 13. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. You know, our prayer here, my prayer for all of you constantly as we're growing and studying the Bible here at New City is that you do, when you stand before the Lord, that you are unblameable in holiness before God. Because the only way to do that is to be in the Bible every single day and to continue to cleanse yourself, wash yourself, be in the water of the word of God and stand so you can stand unashamed before him at this event when he, he takes us home. Okay, even our father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now, you have to separate in the Bible, there are Old Testament saints, there's the church, and then there are tribulation saints. So there's these three groups of people, and every one of them throughout the Bible has a different purpose, they have a different uh, origin, they have a different responsibility in the Messianic kingdom. They're all different, but they're all considered his saints. Because remember what God, what Jesus said about John the Baptist, the law and the prophets were until John. So that means John the Baptist was the close of the Old Testament. And that's why our Lord calls him a friend of the bridegroom, not a part of the bride. It's very subtle, but you have to rightly divide what Jesus is saying there. And the church, we're the only group of people who have ever had and been endowed with the Holy Spirit to accompany and dwell within us permanently. We are permanent vessels of our Savior by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God. And so the church, we are kings and priests from 2 Peter 3, a royal priesthood. That's never been any other group of people on earth because all through the Old Testament, they had to keep those separate. Remember, kings were the tribe of, Le of Judah, priests were the tribe of Levi. So they always were kept separate. So now something's different. We are kings and priests, and that's why in Revelation 4 and 5, you know that we are the 24 elders because in their song, they sing, he hath made us kings and priests by his blood. And so that's us, the church. Well, then the tribulation saints, remember the fifth seal of chapter six, 
the tribulation saints who've been martyred in the tribulation are under the altar crying for vengeance. And their destiny or their call at the end of this is they wear uh, garments, but they serve God day and night in his temple with palm branches. So the tribulation saints have a different role in the kingdom than you and I. You and I, we have crowns promised to us. We get to rule and reign with Christ. You get to be given a, a portion of the earth, of the Gentile kingdom. Some five cities, some 10 cities, you get a territory. It's amazing from Luke 19. But anyway, there's these three different groups of people in the Bible. Okay, and, and look at 1 Thessalonians 4.14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So he's gonna bring people with him, the saints of our Lord. Okay, now the bride will be united to Christ in glory. We see that in Revelation 19, seven through nine. Before he returns to the earth in power in Revelation 19, 11 through 16, and will form part of the armies of heaven, following him back to the earth in Revelation 19, verse 14. Now, I love that God calls us a part of the armies of heaven because oftentimes as, as believers, we don't see ourselves in that light. You know, we don't see ourselves as active military duty for Jesus, but that's how you need to see yourself because when you view yourself as an active participant in what God is doing, then you don't sit by idly and not vote in elections, uh, not get out and voice in school boards, not get out and, and hold a standard of righteousness in your community. And that's what we're called to do. We are called to be very active in the world for our savior and to, to model him and to be the light of the world. I mean, I'm telling you, if the church would stand up and get out there and voice what's truth, there is not a court on earth that would stop anything the church would do. Because we, in Jesus, we have the authority. Like, we need to go out there and hold a standard biblically for what's right in this world. And there wouldn't be any, there would be no, no court, I'm telling you, there would not be a single court that could rule against what you and I would stand for if we would get out there and be active. Remember in, in Jesus's day when he was before the Roman courts, the Roman court could do nothing unless God's people allowed them. Remember that, they couldn't do anything. They were at the mercy of what the Jews wanted them to do. And so that pattern stays true. Like if you and I would just hold a standard and hold a line for God, our communities and our schools would be radically changed. We wouldn't have these disgusting books in our school libraries and um, abortion wouldn't be okay. We, it would, the, the people's view would change on that because God's people would stand up and voice the truth and the truth would set them free. And that's what we've got to view ourselves and reignite the church of God to stand up and be active in our community it's amazing how when that really happens, how blessed cities are and how blessed communities are. Righteousness is restored. There's not, there's, the crime rates go down, divorce rates go down, murder rates go down. It's because you're holding the line and you are walking in light and sharing the truth of God's word with everyone. So the armies, these armies, they're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And you connect them with the bride. We've talked about that a lot. The lamb's wife 
whose garments of fine, clean, and white are said to be the righteousness of the saints from Revelation 19, verse 8. So when we get into studying rewards in the Bible here soon, we're going to look a lot at passive rewards and, and non-passive, non what about active, I guess, active rewards. Active rewards are things you do to be a part of. Passive rewards like, hey, you're going to get a resurrected body no matter what happens. That's a promise to you. You're born again. So we're going to look at some of those. In verse 6 here, though, and it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark. Now, this is pretty fascinating. This will be a very different environment as cosmic changes are taking place. Now, remember, the sun, moon, and stars were not created until after Satan rebelled between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. They were created in the six days of recreation of God, putting it all back together again. That's when the sun, moon, and stars were created. Okay, so there's not going to be light. Light shall not be clear nor dark. Isaiah 13, 9 through 10 says, Behold, the days of the Lord cometh cruel both with wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Well, that sounds like a very seeker-friendly uh, message of Jesus, destroying the sinners out of it. For the stars of heaven shall, and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened and is going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. Okay, so when God returns and he wipes out those that are against him, all of these cosmic things are changing in the universe. Okay, look at Isaiah 24, verse 23. Then the moon shall be confounded or confused, and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall, shall reign in Mount Zion. And in Jerusalem and before his ancients, gloriously. Now, who are his ancients? Now, that's, that's pretty interesting. You can find in Daniel 9, that the ancient of days sets up his throne in his kingdom. That's a reference to this time. Look at Joel 3, verses 14 through 16. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Now, that's the valley of Jehoshaphat that we studied last week, the days of Armageddon. They are making a decision. And every day, it kind of reminds you of in Deuteronomy and Joshua, when God says, I lay before you life and death, blessings and cursings, choose you this day whom you will serve. And every day you and I walk through that valley of decision where you get to choose life or death. Are you going to choose to serve him and to be, be honorable before him? Or are you going to go walk and fall right back into something he's delivered you out of? But the sun and the moon shall be darkened and the stars shall withdraw their shining. It's these kind of things that people get really caught up in blood moons and eclipses. And you know, you, you're hearing that a lot right now because I think it was even the prophecy update in April, that eclipse is going to go over seven cities in the US all called Nineveh. And, and people are making a big deal out of this and that it's some sign and don't, do not get caught up in looking to the sun, moon and stars for signs. Uh, that's, that's necromancy, fortune telling. God doesn't, he does not want that. Now, there will be cosmic changes in the heavens, but we don't look to them for answers. We look to Jesus for answers. Now, he may be showing us, uh, there can be warnings, right? Things can happen. Uh, that happened all through the Old Testament. There were a lot of times they were even looking to 
Uh, remember Daniel and the Magi were looking for a sign in the stars for God to come and when he was going to be born. And that was an angel bringing them to Jerusalem um, where they met with Herod and all of that. So some of, God uses that at times, but we don't look to them for answers. So just, just divide that. Don't get caught up in, hey, there's going to be some blood mood two weeks from now, and that means stock up on water and um, all of our gas is going to get shut down. Don't, don't, don't get fearful about when you see those things. Okay, the Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. Now, Jesus' roaring would be quite the roar. And heavens and earth shall shake at the voice of the Lord. They're going to shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Okay, so he's going to be the strength in this time. Look at Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Now the stars falling from heaven is probably Jesus talking about the angels being cast to the earth. Uh, throughout the Bible, stars are often used as angels. Uh, the morning stars in Job sang when the earth was created in Genesis 1.1. So you know they were created before Genesis 1.1 because they sang together in Job 35 or 38. It's somewhere around there. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars of heaven shall, be, shall fall and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. So God tells us this over and over in the Bible. And you see stars again as a reference to angels in Revelation 6 verse 13. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. Okay, in verse seven here. Oh, the stars of heaven falling to the earth. Remember, uh, Satan in Revelation 12 is cast to the earth because he knows his time is short. So he's casting those, those angelic hosts that are with him, the one-third that fell with Satan, are cast to the earth with him. So at some point, and we don't really, I, the Bible's not exactly clear on how this works, you know, Satan has access to God right now. He converses with him. He shows up in Job, standing before him, uh, railing accusations at Job. Well, there comes a time when he is kicked out of heaven, basically. Uh, he loses all dimensionality, and he's cast, he's constrained to the earth uh, with those stars, the angels that rebelled with him, that one-third. And so, you know, thankfully, the, the good guys outnumber them two to one, but uh, that's, that's when that happens in the tribulation, Revelation 12. Okay, so in verse seven here, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. So this is totally different. It's such a unique time in human history and there's, there's no more day nor night. Now, this is what Jesus meant when he said, I am the light of the world. So there's not gonna be a sun anymore. Jesus is the light of the world. And that's going to be very unique. No human has ever lived during this time like it. Remember, Adam and Eve, uh, they were created after the sun, moon, and stars. And so they've, even they, in all of their glorified state, experienced creation with the sun. And we will get to experience the millennium without it because Jesus is the light of the world. Now, remember in Genesis 1, 14 and 18, God divided the day and night a greater light to rule the day and a lesser light to rule the night. 
and to divide the light from the darkness in verse 18. So he's not going to divide them anymore. They just go away. Look at Isaiah 30, verse 26. Moreover, the light of the moon shall be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun shall be sevenfold as the light of seven days, and the day that the Lord bindeth up the breach of his people and healeth the stroke of their wound. And so when he heals Israel, the sun's going to go crazy, and then he just moves it aside. We don't need that anymore. That's, uh, that's authority to be able to do that. Now, all of this points to the fact that, and you and I, we know creation after two major events, the fall of Adam and Eve and the flood of Noah. And so it's hard to kind of wrap your mind around what was creation like before those two events? What was it like in Genesis 1.1? You know, how was it? But this is where in Romans 8, this is why God says creation groans to be redeemed. So God's going to redeem creation for the earth, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. So creation is waiting for you and I to manifest in our glorified bodies with Christ, the sons of God. That's pretty incredible. Remember, remember in the New Testament, he says, but to he that believes on him, he gave the power to become the sons of God. So that's where you get that from, from the creature for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willing, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption or the bondage of decay. You know, everything that's time-bound decays. Have you noticed that? Uh, trees, life, plants, animals, us, humans, Everything, we are all subject to the bondage of corruption or the bondage of decay over time. And that's, that's something that Jesus frees not only us from, but creation from at this point. And that's pretty incredible. Into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travelleth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. You know, and you and I, we are, I don't know about you, but you should be groaning and so excited about the glorified, resurrected body Jesus has prepared for you. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be absolutely incredible. I don't even think what we have blood anymore. I think in your veins will just be a light from Jesus. And that's probably what Adam and Eve had um, because blood, the life is in the blood, which is why Jesus had to come in the flesh with blood to give life to us, to shed his blood. But that's over now. Okay, that's why also he says in his res resurrected body, handle me and see for flesh and bone does not inherit, or flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of heaven. I'm flesh and bone. So his blood was shed already. Okay, so waters, look at this in waters, living waters in verse eight. And it shall be in that day, this last verse here, that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. So we know that there are seasons in the millennium. Jesus says summer and winter here. Um, I don't know if it'll be a universal temperature that then just seasons are different then. This really opens up a lot of questions because if the sun is gone, 
You know, does the temperature change? I don't know. We're going to have to see when we get there, but it's kind of amazing to think about. You know, but waters in the Bible can often represent purification, the Holy Spirit, refreshment, cleansing. Think about Moses when he struck the rock in the wilderness and the waters came forth. You know, it's interesting that God says that this will happen in both summer and winter, as I mentioned, but that they're going to go toward both directions, east and west. It's not often that you see rivers flowing in two directions. So that's kind of interesting. So out of the temple, there's going to be a river of living water flowing toward the Mediterranean and toward the Dead Sea. So that's pretty amazing. Now, we know in the millennial temple that these living waters will flow out, and that's in Ezekiel 47. That Remember, God shows Ezekiel in the very end of the book that living waters are going to go out from under the threshold of the temple and eastward on the right side and westward on the, on the west side. He looks at that in Ezekiel. Look at Joel 3, verse 18. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine and the hills shall flow with milk. And all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. So the house of the Lord, the millennial temple. Look at Revelation 22 verses one and two. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal. You know, stagnant water is pretty disgusting. (laughs) It sits there, it gets murky, bacteria grows in it. Uh, We have a lot of that in lakes all over Oklahoma. You know, you go and you look at them and you see people jumping in. And I don't know about you, but I kind of stand there a lot of times and go, I don't know if I want to jump in that. You know, some flesh eating amoeba or something's going to get in my nose. But, you know, these things are just, but then you go somewhere where the rivers are roaring, like in Colorado or around Broken Bow or um, at Lake Tahoe, and they're clear and they're cold they're refreshing and you look in them. It's just amazing the difference. And so imagine, you know, if we have that in this fallen state, imagine what the rivers of living water is going to look like with Jesus. Pretty amazing. And a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. Okay, in Revelation 22, he showed me a river of pure water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God. So the throne, the mercy seat that Jesus sits on, there's gonna be rivers of living water coming out from him from the temple, the millennial temple of the lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life. Now, Adam and Eve lost access to the tree of life. Remember, they weren't supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so a different tree, but they lost access to the tree of life when they rebelled. And that's why the Lord sent an angel. But the angel in in Genesis, the flaming sword that went every which way to guard the way to the tree of life, that's the Lord actually guarding and preserving the way back to fellowship with him. He was guarding the way. And that's pretty incredible. You could go into a deep dive study on that. But the tree of life, we get access to it again, which bear 12 manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. So we're gonna have 12 months in the calendar. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So remember in the millennium, the people that are repopulating the earth that make it through the tribulation, there's still gonna be sin around. It's just that it's judged immediately. It's a very different time. Jesus ruling will judge it right away. And you and I get the privilege and the honor 
to extend that rule around the earth and to keep it, keep sin out of here as much as we can. But he's going to judge the earth. He judges sin right away. And there's healing off this tree. Now, it's a pretty unique tree if it's bearing 12 different types of fruit every single month. You know, we have a, a peach tree or an apple orchard or something, but I don't know about you. I've never seen a tree that, that produces bananas and apples and peaches and, and all these different fruits, uh, maybe strawberries, which actually grow on a vine. I don't know. Um, but anyway, it's a pretty amazing. Look at John 4, 10 through 11. Jesus answered and said unto her, if thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink. Remember the woman at the well? Thou wouldest have asked of him and he would have given thee living water, living water. The woman saith unto him, sir, thou hast nothing to draw with and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? And she got a surprise after that, if you remember. Remember John 7, verse 38? He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. You know, forsaking the Lord is compared to a broken cistern that is unable to hold water. And that's in Jeremiah 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Now that's an amazing title of Jesus in the Old Testament that he uses that and hewed out them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So again, living water, it's fresh, it's running, it provides life, it's cleansing. Look at Ezekiel 36, 16 through 37, 28. You have the restoration of the people at first, and then starting in 36, 1, 15, the restoration of the land. And the living water shall go out from Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will be the capital of the millennium, like we've talked about so many times in here. It's going to be the center of all spiritual blessings. Now, God's promise of restoration is all over the Bible, but Isaiah 35, I thought, summed it up really well for us today. Starting in verse 4, say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. He's speaking to Israel. He's speaking to Israel that he's going to come with vengeance. Their God will come with vengeance. Even God with a recompense, he will come and save you. Now that, that's very comforting to Israel in the tribulation. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. So, so miracles like that happening. Then shall the lame man leap as in a heart. So someone that had, wasn't able to walk is going to stand up and leap high into the air. And the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. So the entire Middle East is just going to change radically. Jesus is going, to, is going to change it radically. And the parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water in the habitation of dragons where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And in highway shall be there. Now, this is interesting. Remember, what is our walk called with God in Acts? Remember, it's called the way. And so a high way will be there. It's, God's got a pun here. It's a kind of a play on words. There's a highway to Jerusalem that'll be opened up and a way, and it shall be ca called the way of holiness. This unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be those, the wayfaring men, though fools shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. 
It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. So that's us. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their hearts, their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sign shall flee away. Okay, so the restoration, pretty amazing, pretty amazing time it will be. What a, what a different world we're going to live in with no sun and moon. Jesus says the light of the world, these streams of living waters. And, you know, the world right now is truly grasping for answers. And they see all of this going on that we've talked about so often. You know, the hatred of Israel, the rise of war in the Middle East, the attack on God, corruption of his word. AI right now is rewriting not just the Bible, but it's producing a Christian, I'm using air quotes, Christian shows. And it's creating stories out of Jeremiah and the Old Testament. And it looks beautiful in the storytelling. But if you watch it and you're a student of the Bible, what you'll notice is there are big chunks of the story missing that are just removed. And it's doing that intentionally because if you can take enough out of the story, you can totally rewrite what it means. And that's why God says, don't add to or take away from my word. And because either one is very dangerous. And unfortunately, a lot of believers are not in their Bible enough to recognize what's missing. And so Satan just thinks, well, I can just keep doing this. They're not going to have any clue. They're not going to pay attention. And he's just going to try to rewrite this whole thing. That's why in the, in the tribulation, having a Bible is going to be like the most precious thing anyone can own is to have a copy of the word of God. And right now the world is looking for answers. And what I want to encourage all of us to do right now, you know, we're in the, this weird year of 2024. There's a lot going on right now. It's not even March. I mean, it's, it's February 25th here and we've had... <laughs> Um, well, I, not to list them all, it'd get us all down or something, but it's just what a crazy world we're living in. But here in the United States, it's an election year. And what I want to encourage all of you to do, we have to look through the world through the lens of the Bible. That is the only source of truth. There is no other truth on earth, but Jesus, who is the truth and the word of God. So you have to look through the, the world through the lens of the Bible and what you are seeing right now, 1 John 4, 3, and every spirit that confesseth not Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and is not of God. And this is that spirit of antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come and even now already is in the world. What I just want to encourage us to do as we close out here, Aaron's got a little clip we're going to play. It's 40 seconds long. Um, it's you have all know Harari in an interview and what I want you to see, if you've been sensitive to the last, well, frankly, four years in this visceral attack on Donald Trump and his family, you have to look at it through the spiritual lens of the Bible. Like, what is it about this man that they hate and despise so much? But he gives the answer right here. If you remember when he was in office, he's not a globalist. He is anti-globalism, but for the Antichrist regime to come in, globalism has to take hold. And what I want you to hear is just nothing about politics. If you are a believer, this is a fight for good and evil. That's it. That's the bottom line. And you need to be lifting up in prayer the leaders in this nation 
because we need a revival in this land to sweep across and let the light of the world shine from our nation one more time before we go home, before it's too late. But listen to what he says here about what would happen if, if Trump gets elected this year. Can you play that, Aaron? You concerned that Trump might be elected again? Sure. I, I think it's very likely. Mm. And if it happens, it is likely to be the kind of like the, the death blow to what remains of the global order. And he says it, and he says it openly. Now, again, it should be clear that many of these politicians, they present a false dichotomy, a false binary vision of the world, as if you have to choose between patriotism and globalism, between being loyal to your nation and being loyal to some kind of, I don't know. Is that Aaron? Okay, you can turn the light back on, Chris. Can you go back to the slide real quick, Aaron? So, I mean, listen to what he said. It would be the death blow to the global order if he gets elected. Now, that should tell you everything you need to know. I mean, here's a guy that rails against the God of the Bible constantly every time he opens his mouth. And, and so when you see it through the spiritual lens, it's not a surprise that they will do anything possible globally to, to keep the United States on the track we're on right now. And so you've, I'm just encouraging all of you, please, please be in prayer for our leaders in this nation right now, because we are at a tipping point, you know, in, in the United States, we've got to either have revival and we're going to squash what the enemy's trying to bring in, or we're just going to go continue down this path and uh, things could get pretty hairy you know, at that point. But lift them up. Lift up these people that are standing for righteousness in this nation and that don't want globalism. Um, and you heard him even say, everything we've tried to do up to this point will be just pushed aside. It'll be the death blow to the global order. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want the global order. The only global order I want is with Jesus at the helm of it. And that's the only global order we should all want. And until he returns, there's not going to be a global order of righteousness. So if you're here, if, you're, if you've listened to this, if you found this somewhere and you don't know the Lord, please, please, please accept Jesus and get into the ark before it is too late. Accept him and be a part of his reign in the millennium. It's just so important. Lord, we come before you and we thank you, God, so much for this time together. God, I pray that you'd be with us as we leave this place and we thank you for the word of God. Lord, be with us. And God, we do pray that righteousness would rise up in this nation and that, Lord, you would set your people that fear the Lord in places of government, in places that from the smallest office in the land to the highest, God, let righteousness take its seat once again in this nation and let the people of this land be blessed. Lord, this is a nation that was founded on its dedication to you. And so, Lord, remember that covenant. And Lord, let your Holy Spirit take hold and spread from sea to sea and a great revival across this land. Let the voice of your people rise up in this day. And God, I thank you so much for the opportunity for us to pray over our nation, for there is still time, God. Let us not be the church, the church age, that allows this to come into place. But Lord, give us space, give us time 
to get more people in the ark before it's too late, Lord. The fullness of the Gentiles from Romans 11. And God, we thank you so much for that opportunity. Be with us as we leave this place and as we gather right here next, next Sunday to continue your, your word in Zechariah 14, Lord. Be with us. And Lord, we yield our lives to you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.